And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, force five. Hello, and welcome back to the Force Five Podcast. I am your host, Jason Kleberg, and if this is your first time, Force 5 is the show that forces a guest to come up with a movie-themed top five list, and then we talk about our picks on air. This week's guest is Matt Pepler. He's a very talented artist and co-host of the Post-Credits podcast, and the topic he chose tonight was top five horror sequels. Before we get into the sick, the twisted, and the depraved, I want to talk about what I've seen this past week. Oh, but before that, I did get a message from fan of the show, Paul, a.k.a. Dandy Randy. He sent me a message. It says, have you seen the film The Empty Man? I started watching it last night. What a snooze fest. Turned it off after 20 minutes. You'd probably love it. Thanks for the glowing recommendation, Dandy Randy. To answer your question, I have not seen it. Listeners, if you have opinions on The Empty Man or really any film that I review, let me know and I'll read your comments on the show. All right, on to what I've seen this past week. I watched three things this week that I really want to talk about, and uh, two of those I really, really loved. I'm going to talk about the one I didn't love first, get that out of the way before I get on some glowing reviews. Let's talk about Gunpowder Milkshake. I need to exchange some books. Come. Well, girl, you'll need a Jane Austen. A Virginia Woolf. And an Agatha Christie. For reading. Your talents are needed. Somebody stole from us. We need that money back. There's a change of plan. They kidnapped an eight-year-old girl. I can't leave her to die. Are you now the drill? Give the kill order. After creating a very big mess during a routine hit, Scarlet is given a makeup mission. Get money back from an analyst that stole from her employer. Sounds simple, but unfortunately the mission goes sideways, leaving her stuck with an eight-year-old girl and Russian assassins on her tail. First things first, Gunpowder Milkshake is an awesome title. It just sounds so cool to me. If I ever do an episode, uh, another episode of Top 5 Movie Titles, I'm going to consider this one. And the movie feels like it tries so hard to live up to the cool factor of its namesake, but unfortunately, this one fell a bit flat for me. The comparisons to John Wick are inevitable, and I couldn't help but think, I saw this done better seven years ago while watching it. An assassin who works for a secret network of assassins is hidden in plain sight. In John Wick, most of the assassin business went down at a hotel, and in Gunpowder Milkshake, it's a library. The filmmaker builds a world here that feels beat for beat like a John Wick movie, and it may have even been better served by being in that same universe. Unfortunately, it feels like it's trying to do things in an over-the-top goofy way, but never quite goes the full mile to get there. The actors in Gunpowder Milkshake are all very good, aside from the young girl, which I'll touch on here in a minute. And although I like Karen Gillan, I never found her convincing as a bone-breaking machine. There are several highly choreographed fight scenes that she participates in, and for some reason I just couldn't see the weight behind the moves she was performing. In fact, all of the action seems a little too stagey and didn't feel organic or raw. There was, however, one action scene that I had a lot of fun with, in which our heroine cannot use her arms. I really like that part. Um, she has to tape, she has to have somebody tape a knife to one hand, tape a gun to the other, and she battles these thugs while uh, using creative ways to get the knife and gun going. And I really love that scene. 
but the rest of it just kind of felt a little bit boring. Most of the violence is over-stylized and filled with flashy cuts and CGI blood, which just didn't feel as clever or as fun as the director probably thought it was. This feels even more apparent when, in a crucial climactic scene, certain characters are facing off against many armed men, and they willingly drop their guns to instead use weapons like hammers and chains. That's just one example of stupid character decisions that exist only to manufacture fight scenes instead of letting them happen organically. It's also tough when parts of the film hinge on a young actor, because most child actors aren't that good. Sure, there are exceptions like Haley Joel Osment in The Sixth Sense and Jacob Tremblay in Room, but unfortunately Chloe Coleman isn't one of them. I'm sure that she's a capable actor, but when you see your father murdered in front of you, it should seem like more than a minor annoyance. I just did not connect with Gunpowder Milkshake. I think that the movie is shot well, I think it's styled nicely, I enjoyed the noir feel that invoked shades of Sin City and Double Indemnity, but the story just felt like old news. The actors never had me convinced of their abilities, and the action, while cool looking, wasn't original or interesting enough to keep me invested. Alright, on to the first title this week that I've fucking loved. This is from 1985, a new discovery for me called Walking the Edge. I like like that, baby. I'm totally crazy. Walking the Edge in a violent city. Fuck that, run! Family torn apart. A woman needs to settle the score. If he was pushing drugs to young kids, maybe he deserved it. Danny was my baby. My son. He was an easygoing man, a nice guy with unfulfilled dreams who's been pushed too far. You pick up and deliver, otherwise keep your friggin' mouth shut. Is that clear? My friends don't talk to me that way. I think I'm tired of getting pushed around. A man and a woman, two strangers brought together by chance, held together by fate. Jason, a cab driver who also collects debts for his bosses, takes a fare that brings him more trouble than he could have imagined. Now he's stuck with her and he's got three goons hunting him down throughout the city. Where do I even start showering my newfound love for walking the edge? This one completely snuck up on me and I loved every second of this movie. Let's start with the writing because I think that's one of the movie's strongest points, specifically the dialogue. Now, I don't know if it's due to the words on the page or the actors involved, but every line feels so real, so genuine, just pitch perfect for the grimy 80s Los Angeles setting. People are quipping one-liners, but nothing ever sounds cheesy, and the back-and-forth dialogue is like an intricate dance reminiscent of Quentin Tarantino. Kurt Allen wrote the screenplay, and I guess I'll need to see something else he's done to really understand where the credit should go, because every actor in this film is magnificent. Robert Forster plays Jason, an ex-baseball player turned cabbie who is just tired of getting pushed around. Throughout the film, we see him go from a verbal punching bag to a man on the edge, a guy who isn't a hero to a vigilante doling out justice. Forster was a goddamn force of nature in this film, just fantastic. The co-MVP of Walking the Edge is his best friend, a fellow cab driver named Tony played by A. Martinez. Tony is loyal to a fault, giving Jason only the best advice at all times. If only we had friends as good as Tony. He's got a short amount of screen time, but I'll be damned if he didn't do everything he could with those precious on-screen minutes. The trio of scumbags who are after Jason and the woman he's hiding are your typical 80s bad guys who are just kind of bad because they like being bad. There's no depth to them, but they will definitely make you hate them. The dynamics between the three are actually quite interesting because they seemingly hate each other, but come together when there's nefarious activity at hand. 
The film isn't too gory, and it's not exploitative, although you can see it in its roots. It is gritty, and like I said, shows off 80s Los Angeles, which was really cool. The only thing I didn't love about Walking the Edge was there's a love story that's kind of shoehorned in and seemed pretty unnatural, especially considering the mindset of Christine, played by Nancy Kwan. Overall, I loved Walking the Edge. It's one of these films that felt like lightning in a bottle, and I'm wondering why it didn't propel some of the people involved into bigger things. Maybe it wasn't as well received in 1985, or maybe I'm just in the minority for some reason. I, I don't know. But what I do know is that the next time I'm looking to write quick-witted dialogue in one of my screenplays, I'm going to look to Walking the Edge as a blueprint. And Robert Forster, people need to start including him in lists of the greatest actors of his generation, because he was just so good at what he did. Fun City put this disc out. It looks amazing. It's got uh, stacks of extras, so shout out to Fun City for this release. Just a really, really cool disc and a fantastic movie. The last thing I want to mention today is the best thing I saw last week. A new Nicolas Cage film called Pig. I'm looking for a truffle pig. Someone stole her. I don't understand. Tell me you are. You made the right choice being out there in the woods. There's nothing here for you anymore. There's really nothing here for most of us. Buy yourself a new pig. What are you thinking? I remember every meal I ever cooked. I remember every person I ever served. You live your life for them, and they don't even see you. You don't even see yourself. A secluded truffle farmer named Rob is assaulted, and his cute little foraging pig is stolen. With the help of his buyer, Amir, he heads to Portland to get his pig back. Now, I've said this before, I do not watch trailers. All I had heard is that Pig was going to be like some John Wick-style story in which a person who has way more to them than you'd realize goes to get an animal back from the bad guys that stole it. So I sat down to watch this film, and although technically that's the plot, instead of being some kind of badass assassin, Cage plays an ex-chef, and instead of using guns to get to the bottom of things, he uses words and relationships. Nicholas Cage plays Rob, a man who lives out in the woods with his pig. Together they forage for truffles, a rare fungus that grows under the soil, which they then sell to Amir every Thursday so he can sell them to local restaurants. Rob is a recluse. We find out early on that he's got some trauma in his past and seems to have no friends or connections to anyone aside from his swine. Cage's performance in this is his best in years, and I would not be surprised to see him nominated for an Oscar for this role. If you're coming for the patented meme-worthy freakouts, you're not going to find those here. Instead, you're going to find a nuanced, subtle performance as Rob is forced to go through various layers of the truffle trade to find out who has taken his friend. At first, it feels like Pig might get into this exploitative territory, but it quickly switches direction to a more cerebral place. This is not an action movie, and it sure as hell isn't a revenge story. It's a tale of dealing with grief by three different people. Rob is an ex-chef, one who cared less about the food he was serving and more about the people he was serving. He never forgets a face, never forgets a meal, and uses these skills to find who took his pig, not by tugging at a trigger, but by tugging at heartstrings and having real conversations with people that he used to know. There's an absolutely brilliant scene in which Amir and Rob find themselves at a fancy upscale Portland restaurant called Finway. 
The waitress is spouting off about the complicated food. A truffle, deconstructed scallop combo, flash frozen as the sea and forest meat and blah, blah, blah. Afterward, Rob calls over the chef who recognizes him and sits down. See, he worked for Rob for two months, 15 years ago, but like I said, Rob never forgets a face. It's in this scene that we know all we need to know about Rob. He speaks to the chef's heart, asking why he does what he's doing. And in the scene, we see the chef cracking before our eyes as he realizes that what he's doing is bullshit. Every actor is pitch perfect in this scene. David Nell as Chef Finway is trying to keep a smile on his face to fool the customers who ultimately don't give a damn about him as his soul is quietly crushed on camera. Rob staring into his eyes spouting truth and Amir awkwardly watching this all go down. This is one of my favorite scenes I've seen this year. Speaking of Amir, Alex Wolf, who I knew from Hereditary, is so perfect in this role. At first, he just seems like your typical big city hipster douche. And as we go through the story, we learn so much about why he's the way he is and begin to empathize with him. He's going through his own tale of grief while trying to measure up to a father that he shouldn't be looking up to in the first place. Who knew there would be so much power in simply turning a radio off? His father is played by Adam Arkin as a gangster who evokes menace, but at his core is also just working through things in his own way. I loved how everyone in this film is layered in shades of gray, and no one is as one-dimensional as movies often portray. In the end, I think that Nicolas Cage's performance in Pig is an allegory to the film itself. Cage is a man who seems like the butt of a lot of Hollywood jokes, and a lot of people probably only say they like him ironically for those performances like The Wicker Man or the direct-to-video crap he's been in, just as those who see Rob make fun of him as they drive away with their truffles. But at his core, Nicolas Cage is a great fucking actor. He's the best at what he does, he's got an Oscar on his mantle, and just as Rob comes out of the woods to show Portland he's still here, this is Cage coming out of the woods to show you what he can do. This is acting and all that other bullshit, it doesn't matter. Pig is fucking awesome. It's a tour de force of acting and an example that even a very simple story, if written, acted, and directed well, can have a big impact. Before we get Matt Pepler in here to talk about horror movie sequels, I think it's time we touched on the elephant in the room. I feel like a lot of people feel left out when they walk into an Ulta or a Sephora and you see rows and rows of lipstick, but for some reason, it's all marketed towards females. Well, today's sponsor aims to change that. Enter Ichiban Lipstick for Men. Ichiban comes in several shades just for dudes. Their most popular shades for this season are their striking blue frost and their signature, the Tribbiani. Head to IchibanLipstick.com and put in promo code FORCE5, that's FORCE, and the number 5 for 5% 5 off of a free sampler pack. They say you can't put lipstick on a pig. Well, let's try it. Maybe he's born with it. Maybe it's Ichiban. This is the Force 5 Podcast, and tonight I'm joined by Matt Pepler. He's the co-host of the Post Credits Podcast and an artist whose work you can find on mpepler.com. Matt, welcome to Force 5. Well, thank you for having me, man. It's a pleasure. I'm excited to talk about this stuff. Yeah, we got uh, a good show planned for everybody today. Before we get started, though, tell us a little bit about you. Where are you from? What do you do? Uh, what's Matt Pepler all about? Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm over in Michigan, but um, yeah, I've, always, I've been an illustrator and graphic designer in like the mid-Michigan area, as well as 
I travel a lot, you know, uh, to comic cons and horror cons and everything. So I am excited that, you know, COVID restrictions are lifting and I can actually get back out on the road and uh, visit some of these cities. But uh, the artwork that I do is um, it's like pop culture stuff, but I do concentrate on horror a lot, but it's like a minimalistic kind of style, I guess. It's hard to explain because sometimes it's like ever evolving, right? So sometimes I go into like phases where I'm adding like a ton of detail and then sometimes I bring it back down to where it's like real minimal, like silhouette stuff, you know? So it just depends on what I'm doing, what I'm working on, that sort of thing. But yeah, primarily it's like uh, alternative movie posters and um, then like uh, like travel posters for uh, fictional uh, locations like based in movies or television shows. Yeah. And listeners, look, if you're driving, obviously don't do this. But if you're not driving, you can listen and go to the website at the same time. Go to mpepler.com. Check out the artwork. I went to check it out and ended up buying four posters for the studio, which I'll be posting pictures of as soon as I get them in and uh, and they're framed. Like there's some dope art there. Thanks. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. So, yeah, I was surprised because it's like I, you know, reached out and then we were chit-chatted back and forth. And I look and I'm like, I think that's the, I think that's him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I literally bought four prints. Uh, One of them was one of those fake travel ones for uh, Crystal Lake, which may or may not come up on the list later. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Um, Yeah, that was a fun one to draw. Uh, That actually, like, it was so long ago. That was about eight years ago that I did the Camp Crystal Lake one. And I was like struggling because I wanted to make artwork like more accessible or like what I was creating. But I had like a lot of like pretty severe, I wouldn't say, I guess not severe, but more spot on horror, right? Like horror related artwork. And what people, I kept coming across the same comment of like, oh, I love this, but I couldn't put that up in like my living room with my kids. And I was like, (laughs) oh, yeah, that's kind of problematic, you know, (laughs) like, uh, so I was trying to I forced myself to make something that was about a horror movie, but didn't have any horror in it. And that was the solution that I came up with. And then it just kept spawning into like, oh, I could do it for, you know, Amity Island for Jaws and Haddonfield for Halloween. And it just kept going and going and going. So now it's like this huge portfolio of, you know, fictional travel posters, you know. So yeah. it's been fun doing them. They look awesome, uh, and obviously there's a lot of horror stuff on your website. Today's topic is obviously getting back into the horror genre, but um, what are some of your favorite non-horror films? Oh, man, like I love Shawshank Redemption. That's like one of my favorite movies. Um, same with like the first two Godfather movies. Uh, I love them so much. Uh, the storytelling I feel is it's not like there's never a wasted moment in each one of the in each minute in those movies. It's pretty fantastic. Um, yeah, I go back to those all the time, but those are just a couple that are coming off the top of my head right now. Uh, but then, uh, I don't know, like old school comedies I love too. Like I'm, I'm just looking at like movies I haven't watched yet that I have bought. <laughs> I have this problem of buying a ton of movies and then never watching them but like stuff like scrooged i love or et uh super eight stuff like that you know um anything that kind of hits that like nostalgia from the 80s uh is something i always gravitate towards shawshank which you mentioned first is getting a, a 4k release i don't know if you saw that no i didn't that's great 
Oh, that's awesome to hear. And then like my favorite movie of all time is also getting one, The Thing. Uh, That's finally coming out in 4K. So it sounds like you're really into horror movies. Obviously, your art is is horror. We mentioned The Thing. What's the inspiration for your topic today, which is top five horror sequels? What drew you to the to the subsequent movies? Yeah, well, I find it um, I find it really interesting with sequels how they can introduce new characters but make you care about them as much as the original cast that like you watch the movie that like got you involved that you really appreciate and then it just like this it can snowball on it it's really rare for certain movies to have sequels where it's like yeah that's kind of underwhelming that's kind of the feeling you get you want it to be better but and you know that first one's still the best where it's like some of these i'm like I got to say, like, the sequels are better. So it was always something to talk about or that I would like to talk about. And I think this was just like the perfect opportunity to do that. You ready to get to the list? I am. Yeah, let's do it. You know what's going to happen? You know what's happening here right now? I know what's going to happen. No, 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 no. What? You just made the list. Top five. Top five horror sequels. My number five, um, this one is the, it came out just a year after the original and it blew me away in terms of the uh, improving on the first. And this is 1997's Scream 2. Hello? Hello, Sydney. Remember me? What do you want? It's time, girlfriend. Don't you know history repeats itself? This was directed by Wes Craven. Like I said, takes place a year after the original. Um, now, the, the first Scream, are you a fan of the first Scream? I love the first Scream. It's, uh, I, I was uh, blown away when I saw it when it came out in the theaters. So it was... It was crazy to see it as being like a horror fan and then coming into this movie because you do get a little jaded the more horror you see where it's just like, eh, I've already seen that. And then to have something come out where it's like this, it's something fresh and new was exhilarating. Slashers were huge in the 80s. And then when it came to the 90s, like early to mid 90s, there really wasn't very many slasher movies coming out. It was like people had just kind of grown tired of them. And Scream came along and both lampooned those films, but it also crafted this very highly enjoyable meta style slasher around it that kept you guessing. And then Scream 2 came in and took that to another level because it went at the sequels while again crafting this film that was poking fun at the stupid things from horror sequels while still sticking to that familiar formula. And you have people in the film talking about the tropes of sequels and then falling prey to those same tropes that they're making fun of. So the the story of Scream 2 is that after the series of events from the first movie, Gail Weathers, played perfectly by Courtney Cox, has written a book about those events, which has then been turned into a movie called Stab. And like the first film, you've got two big stars in the very first scene who are killed off immediately, (laughs) letting you know, number one, this is fucking Scream. You're back in our universe. And then number two, nobody is safe. And uh, as the movie progresses, there's this copycat ghost face killer, and he starts stalking Sidney Prescott, who is at college now, 
It's a college that she and Randy from the first film both go to, and we're introduced to a whole new set of friends. Um, Sarah Michelle Gellar's in there. Josh Jackson's in there. Timothy Oliphant is in there. I love that dude. Okay, so I just... Re- I'm, uh, uh, sorry to interrupt you. I bought, like, the whole Scream series, you know, uh, recently again to revisit them. Like, the the first one is so, like, imprinted in my head that it's it's one of those ones where you don't really need to rewatch it. But I had forgotten that Timothy Oliphant was in Scream 2. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, like, it was... One of those things where you felt like someone like rewrote history, like you remembered something completely <laughs> different. And he does not look like a, a first year college student, but I'm going to let no. it slide because I, I no. love this dude. Uh, and like I said, it's very meta. There's a scene that takes place where you have all these characters in film class and they're talking about how sequels always suck. And the class like debates sequels and they, mm-hmm. they actually mentioned two films that nearly made my list in that discussion which is kind of fun the screenplay by the creator of dawson's creek which can be surprising kevin williamson uh it's awesome and it leads to a really great unmasking that you probably won't see coming if you've never seen scream 2 um much like the surprise of the the killer of the first one when you watch the first one so yeah scream 2 excellent sequel and a perfect way to kick off my list well, one more thing. It's also surprising with Scream 2 that they were still able to pull off very tense scenes knowing, already having the first one come out, like this being the sequel, and you're still like experiencing the unexpected and that mm-hmm. they're able to pull that off, which is pretty impressive to do when it's like, yeah, I've seen this movie. This is the sequel to the one that kind of turned horror on its head, you know, so... Uh, pretty impressive that they were still able to do that. Like the one thing that I could remember is like the when Sydney and her friend are in the cop car and uh, there was some sequence that happened and the cop ended up getting impaled and then they have to crawl over Ghostface. I guess it was yep. a pretty like tense sequence. Yeah, there's another one involving the news van that, that sticks out as well outside of a party that um, becomes very deadly for certain characters. Oh, yeah. Yes. Very deadly. <laughs> All right, Matt, what's your uh, number five on your list of top five horror movie sequels? I'm going with Halloween 4. Ten years ago, on the night of October 31st, a small Midwestern town fell victim to an escaped killer. Under the cover of darkness, he carried out the most horrifying mass murder on record. Sixteen people in cold blood. Ever since that night, no one has forgotten his name and Halloween has never been the same this one uh, the easy choice would be to go with like Halloween 2 um, but what I really enjoyed about this one is I feel like it got the spirit of Halloween down like the feeling of the actual holiday down in the movie Because in the original, like they shot it in the middle of summer. So it's supposed to be like (laughs) fall. But if you look close in all the scenes, like all the trees still have green in them, you know, and if anyone knows the Midwest, it's like, nah, man, all the leaves are gone. (laughs) Uh, All the trees by, you know, middle of October. So um, but then uh, I like the new dynamic of like Danielle Harris's character and like her step older sister and you end up like caring about these characters 
even though like you they're so all of them are so new to you you know the only returning character is you know dr loomis but still you're on this like wild tense ride on halloween night that just reminded me so much of the first one you know that i felt like this is more of this is a more sincere sequel than halloween 2 was it also uh, brought in a, this is the one with his niece as the main character, and she's like a child. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, it's one of those rare things where, like, a lot of horror movies don't put children in danger at all. You know, they're usually kind of like a, a side character. Uh, but to have, like, a little girl as the main character, I think, intensifies uh, what happens throughout the whole movie, you know? I find that, like, to be a good choice to do you know but then you have arguments of the fifth one where it's like okay this is crazy <laughs> now <laughs> this is not what i signed up for this is the return of michael myers mm-hmm. when you started saying halloween i was like okay is he gonna say halloween 2 or halloween 3 which i really really love halloween 3 but it went in a completely bonkers direction from the first two halloween films in which michael myers wasn't in it at all um, it's like that whole history is super interesting, too, where like Halloween itself, like the franchise was supposed to be kind of like an anthology where like Michael Myers was only going to be in the first one. And then like every Halloween movie in the franchise was going to be was going to focus on a different thing, like a different event or whatever. But, you know, Halloween, the first one was such a success that they went right into a second one. But this was still like Halloween three was still going to get made. So I can understand the pushback on it after you come off Halloween two, then you're like, well, this is Halloween three, but where's Michael Myers and what are all <laughs> these other people? And wait, there's robots and these masks are going to kill the kids. <laughs> like it just, it go- comes out of left field. But I think if it had not been named Halloween three, I think it would have stood up on its own two feet instead of, you know, a couple decades of people crapping on it and then come to realizing that it's a pretty decent movie, you know, toward towards the end. Uh, there was a lot of hate for that movie for a long time. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so undeserved. It's just a different direction <laughs> yeah. for the Halloween yeah. series. But, you know, the producers were like, we got to get Michael Myers back. So uh, they brought him yeah. back. Let's see. My number four is from 2011 i just cannot get enough of this series and this one is the film that has closed off the series at least for now that's final destination five you're not supposed to be here you're supposed to die on that bridge a lucky few survive the disaster and then one by one I'm an unapologetic lover of the Final Destination series, just to throw that out there. I've talked about it before on this show. I think they are so fun. Are you a fan of Final Destination, or are you one of those that do not like this series? I can be hit or miss with them. And I like the first one, but then like the rest of them get uh, uh, kind of gray for me. Not that... I don't like them, but they're so similar where it's hard to bring out like which one was from or what events were from what movie. So I got to ask, like, is five the one where it's almost like a prequel to the first one, like the tail end of it wraps around into the events of the first one? 
It definitely is. Yep. Closes out the series perfectly. This one's great. If you come to a Final Destination movie, hopefully by now you know what you're getting into, and you're not necessarily coming for the awesome characters, you are coming for the Rube Goldberg-like kill sequences. And this movie really brings on the suspense, it really brings on the gore, and in these Rube Goldberg-type traps, it brings on these red herrings that ratchets up the tension. Um, each each Final Destination movie like kicks off with a group of characters cheating death during a really big set piece. The first one is, of course, on an airplane. The second one is the freeway crash, which has affected many people's ability to drive behind a logging <laughs> truck to this day. Um, third one was the roller coaster, which still freaks my wife out to this day. The fourth one, which I think is the most forgettable of the series, is a NASCAR race, like a, a race track. Oh, yeah. I actually saw that one in the theaters. I remember that one now. Yeah. Yep. And then this one is set on a suspension bridge. And it is a wild opening to this movie. Really great. And I saw this one in theaters in which the 3D was done very, very well. It's done really well in this film. Of course, you then have subsequent set pieces where you know people are going to die, but you don't know how they're going to die. And the movie does an amazing job of setting up all these possible ways that somebody could die and then having it go in a direction that you don't see coming. I talked about the gymnastics sequence on... That's so creepy. Sorry to interrupt you. I just get excited about this stuff. Yeah, but that gymnastics sequence, like, oh, come on, man. You know, it's so good. Um, if you want to hear more about that sequence, I talked about it on the one with uh, Chef Nick from Hell's Kitchen on that episode. Uh, there's also a fantastic scene inside of an eye doctor's office where <sighs> the optometrist is doing um, LASIK surgery and things start going sideways, which is just great. And there's a scene in a Chinese spa, which is one of these places where as the person walks in, you're like, how bad can it be in this relaxing spa? And things get nuts. And it's with a character that you just hate already. So what a great scene. And like you had mentioned, this, this film ends with this amazing tie-in to the series that... I never saw coming. And when that last 15 minutes hits, it's like, oh, my God, if you're a fan of the series, it just puts a bow on it so nicely. So well written. Great direction. And the suspense is top notch for these Final Destination movies. A worthy addition to my list at number four. It's one of those things that you don't notice, but they really did a good job of making old technology or like, OK, for example, a, a get a dead giveaway is like, what type of technology do they have in the movie? Right. Is yep, it like going to be like a prequel? Right. So they purposely like made people have phones that would have been used by people from the first movie. Right. But it's not that far like out of sync to what we're working at or what we're using today. Right. But if you look close, like all the technology, all the cars is stuff from the year of the very first movie, which I found really fascinating. 
So they really did try their best to make it fit in. Not like, oh, here's our, you know, Apple 10 phone from, <laughs> you know, early 2000s or whatever, whenever Final Destination was released. That's really interesting. And I really do appreciate that, like, level of detail. Yeah, I know. I, I come back to that, too, because when it hits at the end, you're like, oh, wow, I never really paid attention to the technology in the film because it was never front and center. Right. If you go back, right. it all fits. Yeah, it does. It's really cool. So I always love finding out those like little details that are in something to add to the authenticity of it. So kudos to them. This one's directed by a guy named Stephen Quayle, who I had never heard of. So I looked him up and he really hasn't directed much since in terms of his his own stuff. But he was the second unit or assistant director. Like he worked on a ton of uh, James Cameron films. So he worked as like a second oh, unit on Titanic, on Avatar, uh, all the way back to additional crew credits on like True Lies, T2, and The Abyss. Oh, wow. That's going way back. Yeah. So this dude has pedigree. All right, my friend, number four for you. Um, I'm going with uh, Friday the 13th, part six. They thought the nightmare was dead. <laughs> And buried. They were wrong. Jason lives. Happy Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th, part six. Jason lives. Rated R. Starts Friday, August 1st at a theater near you. Uh, this to me is the best of the Friday the 13th movies. Um, by the sixth one, like, what else could you possibly do, you know? And then this one comes out of nowhere with being, you know, self-deprecating and uh, funny and kind of a parody of slasher movies. And then on top of that, like, you have all these, like, layers. You have, like, the dumb opening with, like, the James Bond-type theme where, like, Jason's slashing the screen and then blood flows down like a James Bond movie. But then you have great special effects like Jason looks awesome in this movie. Uh, fantastic. I mean, if you want, like my favorite is like or how Jason looks is going to be the seventh one. But this is like a close second to me. And then just you get this like atmospheric feel of like Camp Crystal Lake that I don't think was matched in other movies. So, yeah, this one, if I I'm like, I want to watch a Friday the 13th movie. It's I always end up putting in this one. This to me just seems like it's the best edition, you know. Um, and like it's it's crazy to me that like, you know, on a little side tangent like that, Jason became so iconic, but you don't even get to the hockey mask until the third movie. You know, it's crazy <laughs> yeah. to me to think about that. But uh, but yeah, this is always like hands down my favorite. Uh, Friday the 13th movie. So for me, this is like creme de la creme type, type of thing as far as the Friday the 13th movie goes. This is this is the last one with uh, Tommy Jarvis, right? Yes, it is. And then it goes bonkers into the seventh when you're talking about like, basically it's Carrie versus, you know, Jason Voorhees. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned six because not only does it uh, segue perfectly into my number three, I can tell my story about watching up to six. <laughs> so I watched a live. Um, you listen to the podcast. How did this get made or no? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I love those guys. One of the great podcasts out there. And they did a live show in my neck of the woods for Friday the 13th, part six. Oh, did you go? I of hope course I went. Excellent. Yeah, of course I went. So my wife, it was for my birthday or Christmas or something. She got us tickets to this. Um, she's a big fan of the three of them as well. So she had not seen any of the Friday the 13th movies. She's not a big horror fan. But I'm like, we got to watch them all because you can't just jump into six. Like, we got to watch them all. We went through one by one. And her not being a horror fan, I was very impressed that she sat with me through all of these. And she realized, like, how kind of dumb they were. Like, they weren't really that scary. <laughs> right. and, right. uh, and six struck us as very odd because I hadn't seen six for a very long time when we watched these again. And it was very meta the same way that, like, Scream kind of is. It had a yeah. very different tone. Mm-hmm. It does. And that's 100% right. Like, that's how I look at it as well. It's got this... It almost it's like self-aware. It's almost like what Fast and the Furious has become, you know, where it's like, <laughs> yeah, we're a street racing movie and we're so serious. And it's like, OK, now you're going into space. All right. Yeah, <laughs> so, yep. yeah that's what I love about it, though. Uh, that kind of like I, I kind of refer to it as like self-deprecating. Well, it actually segues perfectly into my number three, because I would argue that the best in the series is Friday the 13th, the final chapter, which is number four. Jason is back. Three times before. Sorry to change your mind. You have felt the terror, known the madness, lived the horror. But this is the one you've been screaming for. Because Friday, April 13th, will be Jason's unlucky day. Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Now playing at a theater near you can sell your local listings. First to introduce Tommy Jarvis. Yes, yep, <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to say. Played by uh, Corey Feldman. Yeah, and I think that's why this one uh, gets downvoted for me, because I really don't like Corey Feldman. <laughs> Ooh, okay, all right. Um, now, I'm not a huge fan of, like, Corey Feldman as an actor. I think he's fine, uh, but I, I really like this one. The story is familiar if you're a Friday the 13th watcher. You know, it takes place right after number three. Like, you get the end of number three in the beginning of number four as they take Jason off to the morgue. Right. And he busts out of the morgue in very spectacular fashion, which I'll talk about here in a second, and then heads back to Crystal Lake. But I think that much like Halloween 4... You, you get introduced to this new family and that adds a new wrinkle into the Friday the 13th uh, like killing spree because we're so used to these disposable like your typical disposable teenagers at the lake who just want to drink and bang. Uh, and those characters are in here, too. But you also get this family of a divorced mom and and this little kid, Tommy Jarvis, and his protective teenage uh, sister. And it just feels a little bit different. I did think this one was pretty well written for a slasher film. And Tom Savini came back to yep. do the special effects. And they are, oh, they are so good. Um, some notable kills that I want to mention. When he's getting out of the morgue, this dude who's just a total dick. And you're like, oh, I hope this guy eats it. Are you talking about a, Axel? Yeah, talking, Axel. Yeah, Axel he's gets a, it, yeah. He's the, He's like I this think, pervy morgue guy. Yeah, I think uh, if you are the type of person that didn't want to see Axel get it, that's kind of a reflection of who you are. 
(laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Most people I'm sure are watching this movie like, oh, this dude needs to go. Yeah. And uh, so Jason takes a bone saw to his neck, but it's not enough to just cut his neck or cut his head off. He cuts halfway through and then twists his whole head around. It's just one of those scenes that I'll always remember. Uh, There's also a kid that gets it with a spear gun to the dick where he like he pushes the spear gun into this guy's crotch and lifts him up by the spear gun. (laughs) It's such a cringy thing where it's kind of like you end up like squirming in your seat a little bit. You're like, oh, my God. Come on. Yeah. And then while he's got him up on the pole, he like presses the button to release the spear. Uh huh. Yeah. And then a classic one where he crushes a guy's head against the bathroom shower tile just oh, yeah. pushes his head like to squash it so good that's right savini did the first film and i think he came back because he wanted to help kill it yeah he said they they uh oh who was it paramount uh they said that the uh, well they wanted savini to come back and do the special effects again and he said he's like well I, i'm not gonna come back unless this is the last movie which you know history told us is not you know so that was why he was brought back because i don't know if they lied to him or they just told him that or he was under the impression that this was going to be the last friday movie you know so that's why he want it was kind of like a kind of like putting a bow into it you know something he he helped start and then he was going to finish so that's why he came back uh my third pick is a nightmare on elm street part three it's 1987 know where Freddy is. There's no waking up from this nightmare. A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 3, Dream Warriors, rated R. Now showing at a theater near you. This is one of two movies that I can think of that I feel is better than the original, like superbly better. The introduction to once again, like a bunch of new characters and then mixing them with the old characters, you know, like you have, obviously you still have Freddy Krueger, but Nancy returns and then so does her father. But what's interesting is you end up rooting for the new characters more than the old ones, even though you're more familiar with them. Like you want these new characters to survive, you know, and I love seeing like not only is it like while they're dreaming, they're unsafe, but they're in an asylum, you know. Uh, So it's like, when are you safe if you're not safe when you're dreaming and being in an asylum isn't really a pleasant place to be to begin with, uh, it adds more of that tension to it. And I also really loved how inventive it became uh, with the kills. You know, you've got like the whole welcome to primetime bitch. Then you've got, you know, the marionette death where like Freddy Krueger like cut the veins out of the guy and is dangling him like he's a puppet off the side of the building. Oh, my God. It's just it's it's a wild experience. But then, you know, like I said, like you're rooting for these characters to get through this mess, you know. And then, like, it added so much more lore to, like, what is Freddy Krueger? How did he get to the place that he's at now? 
Uh, so it adds like to everything. It makes the whole experience that much more rich because now you're finding out all this extra information about everything. You know, it was really fantastic. I love this one. The marionette scene made also made my uh, top horror movie kills list. It's just <laughs> it's so oh, it's so gruesome. It's so good. And just putting yourself in that situation. Yeah. How just, terrifying would that be? Like you're dreaming and then suddenly like someone's dangling you by your own veins. Get out of here. I think it's his tendons. Like his tendons. Oh, and his that's wrists even worse. Achilles. <laughs> that's even oh. worse. Yeah. This is so nasty. <laughs> I met Robert Englund once and um, it was at a it was at a horror convention in um, uh, Lexington, Kentucky called Scarefest. So I had him sign like the Freddy Krueger portrait that I had made. And then he starts talking to me. I was like, oh, yeah, I, you know, illustrated this poster. He ends up talking to me for like 10 minutes about like my artwork. And I'm like, this is crazy. Like, I'm I'm here to get your <laughs> autograph, sir. Like, you have no business talking to me about like artwork that I'm making. And he was like really impressed. And then uh, so we talked for a little minute and his like, you know, assistants are kind of like shooing me away because there's a massive <laughs> line behind me. Right. And um, I looked down at the poster and he was like, he signed it. Welcome to primetime, bitch. Freddy Krueger. <laughs> <laughs> like, nice. like, all right, that's that's pretty impressive. Uh, thank you. That's a one for the record books. The memory of it I always keep. That's so cool. He's always seemed like a really like a really nice person. He was. It seemed like he wanted to at least have like a small conversation with everyone that came up to him. You know, uh, that was my, uh, you know, uh, impression of what it was like. Uh, it seemed like everyone who got an autograph or a photo with him was like super happy about it. You know, sure. Uh, yeah, other yeah. people. Uh, who had had the same experience getting an autograph or a photo with Corey Feldman was like, I wish I never met him. <laughs> you know? Oh, no. Yeah. So. Ugh. But anyways. Well, that's too bad. That is, uh, by the way, I don't have any more. I don't have any more Corey Feldman movies on my list. So okay. the rest of my list is Feldman less. <laughs> OK. <laughs> uh, my number two, though, is filled with zombies it is the second in the Dead series, Dawn of the Dead, from 1978. In 1968, George Romero brought us Night of the Living Dead. It became the classic horror film of its time. Not that room! Not that room! Now, George Romero brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. This situation must be controlled before it's too late. They are multiplying too rapidly. Dawn of the Dead. Meet me on the roof at 9 o'clock. Get out. I don't believe We're it. We're going to get out in the chopper. We've got to survive. Somebody's got to survive. They kill for one reason. They kill for food. They eat their victims. Imagine, if you will, that something has gone terribly wrong. Hard to top Night of the Living Dead, but I think this is the best in the series. I know I'll, I'll probably get some uh, pushback from people who either have an affinity for Night of the Living Dead or even Day of the Dead, but I think this is like the quintessential zombie movie. I agree. Um, and I, I would understand, like, if you're a... Uh gory special effects type of guy or person yeah you're gonna say day of the dead 
you know, that is some bonkers shit where, you know, the amount of special effects in that movie and the grotesque nature of them all. Yeah, I could see why, like, people would say, like, oh, Day of the Dead's better. But Dawn of the Dead, man, I agree with you. This is probably the best in the Of the Dead series. Again, special effects this time from Tom Savini, who I had just talked about. It's about this zombie apocalypse. It's hit Earth. You have dead people becoming zombies. You get it. Uh, We've all seen it before. These zombies have, like, bluish, purplish makeup on. It's kind of funny. Doesn't really, like, the look of the zombies doesn't really hold up, but the gore holds up. Yeah, we basically follow this this pack of people. There's a couple of SWAT team guys and a pair of people from a TV station, and they jump in a helicopter. They're trying to find refuge in this uncertain world, and uh, like they they fly to the rural part of town. They they try to get some gas. They're trying to figure out where to go, and they end up flying to a shopping mall. And they break into this mall. They barricade the doors, and they basically make this mall their home until the barricades are inevitably torn down. It's not a typical zombie movie in that it spans a pretty good amount of time, especially once they get to the mall. Like, we we see how people from the country deal with these things. We see how the military's dealing with it. And then we see these people basically make this mall their home. Right. Of course, there are, like, top-notch horror elements here, but... All of the dead films have a bit of social context to them. And in this film, it's about the materialistic nature of people. As we've watched these people settle into this mall and then make their own little spaces filled with what would have been like these modern indulgences. But of course, in the end, none of it really matters. And uh, that's a subtext that's really not beaten over your head, which I, I think is nice. The special effects, like I said, are great. Savini's gore is fantastic. There's one scene that always sticks out to me where they're they're trying to get gas for this helicopter and the blades yes. are still going and this zombie's like shuffling up and the the pilot is putting gas in it with the sound of the blades. He can't hear the zombie coming up and everybody's trying to warn him. And the zombie climbs up on these boxes and gets the top of his head lopped off by the helicopter yeah. blade. He just falls over dead. Classic scene. Yeah, it's really impressive how they did that. Like the because they have like a like a inch taller prosthesis on his head, almost like a baseball cap, and literally like someone like Tom Savini's assistant or something is running off camera with like a, a fishing line to make the cut happen. <laughs> and like there yeah. were like hoses going up the back of the neck, so when the fishing line came off, like the blood shot everywhere. You know, it was pretty interesting. Pretty. Pretty genius stuff like that you wouldn't think would be so effective, but it is super effective when you see it on camera. Really good. One of the best zombie movies ever made and a a climax that is just so good featuring uh, bikers, zombies and people trying to get away in that helicopter. Yeah. And that's another thing that I like this or one of the other reasons that I like this movie a lot is that it's not necessarily like, oh, it's just going to be us versus the zombies. You know, it's like these other people trying to like take over the mall kind of also bring on like the end of using this mall, you know? Uh, So it's more like us versus them and their zombies, you know? So I thought that was such a cool thing to do. And now you see so many other things where that like that's the case all the time, you know? But before like the Walking Dead comic book and subsequent television show there wasn't really that type of story it was always like yeah we're unified against these things it's like no we're not (laughs) we're not at all (laughs) yeah 
All right. Number two for you. I'm going with Evil Dead 2. I thought the movie was completely great. It was the most brutal brains and guts I've ever seen in my life. It was hot. I mean, it was so scary. I was jumping out of the seat. I hid through about half of it. Blows Texas Chainsaw away. Evil Dead 2. It's a classic horror film. Dead by Dawn. Coming soon to a theater near you. This is uh, great. You know, I watched these in order. It was like, oh, I haven't, like, this was when I was in college sometimes. I was like, I haven't seen these movies. So rented like Evil Dead and then went to Evil Dead 2. And I was, I was like, well, I, after I watched Evil Dead 2, I'm like, I'm never watching the first one again. <laughs> you know, like, this is, this is amazing to me. I loved um, the special effects, like how these demons looked. And then like the slapstick on top of that, it was the first realization that I had where it's like, oh, horror can be hysterical at the same time. You know, um, it wasn't something that I saw before uh, where it's like you're laughing at these horrific things unfold, you know. Uh, and even like when he's in the tool shed and he's facing off against his headless, you know, demon girlfriend <laughs> with the chainsaw, like it's so absurd. It looks bad like you can tell it's puppets but that's also like part of the fun is just that it's so fun to laugh at you know uh this is one of my favorite horror sequels ever it's so great um and then like even uh i guess um john or not john carpenter kurt russell met bruce campbell once and upon meeting him kurt russell walked up to bruce campbell and said say tool shit, (laughs) (laughs) which I think is a hilarious introduction to someone you've never met before. Just say tool shit. So this is a great entry. I love it. It's one that I can watch like millions of times and never get sick of. Like you said, it's kind of a remake of the first one, but way better and way funnier. It's so similar to the first one. It's like, well, yeah, why even why do I need to see the first one? But it's so funny because, I mean, even like Ash vs. Evil Dead is like a retelling of all these movies, but people just want more of it, you know? <laughs> it's just like, yeah, yeah, tell the same story to me. I don't care. Uh, this one was very, very close to my list. I just bought the um, the dual steelbook, Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 steelbook. Oh, nice. And um, I haven't yet watched them, but... I bet that if I had watched them, this would have made my list. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Grand finale time for me. This I teased might be a controversial pick because some people don't lump it in with horror films, but I absolutely do. And some people might not even realize that it's a sequel. That's Jonathan Demme's Silence of the Lambs from 1991. Trapped in a killer's world. Guided by a madman's logic. Searching for a victim's cry. In February 1991, the scream of terror will be the sound of silence. The Silence of the Lambs, from the terrifying bestseller. Younger listeners or people not really into horror films might not have heard of Michael Mann's movie Manhunter from 1986. And in Manhunter, William Peterson plays Will Graham, who was later played by um, Edward Norton. And Hannibal Lecter was played by Brian Cox, who, again, a lot of people know from, like, 
the Jason Bourne in the X-Men series, but I'll always remember him as the guy who uh, Steven Seagal manhandled in The Glimmer Man. <laughs> uh, this one stars Jodie Foster as Clarice Starling. She's a young FBI agent who's on the trail of this serial killer named Buffalo Bill who's skinning people. And she's trying everything she can to, to figure out who the fuck this guy is and how to stop him. And to do so, she seeks the advice of Hannibal Lecter, who everybody knows by now. He's this genius psychologist who's also a cannibal and a serial killer. And this time, he's played by Anthony Hopkins in a role that just made both Hopkins and Hannibal Lecter icons, which I will touch on here in a second. But the fight I think people would have with me on this is that it kind of teeters sometimes on the edge of like psychological thriller and horror film but to me it's always fit into the horror category and if I have to fight somebody over it it's often brought up when people complain about the Oscars not giving horror films their due this one is the one that people look to to say well it's they've only had one horror movie win best picture and it's this one right here this is a horror movie what do you say are you on my side or are you against me it's one of those weird, I think it is when you start picking apart, but it's not one of those things that I go to as like, oh, this is a horror movie, right? Because it does have all the horror movie elements, but I never associate it. I, okay, like if you're like, hey, give me some horror movies right off the top of your head. It's, Silence of the Lambs, unfortunately, is not one that I think of. But it is a horror movie in the same vein that like Jaws is a horror movie, you know? Sure. A lot of people don't like think of these two movies as horror movies but it fits the same thing i mean you could take jaws put a hockey mask on them near a lake and it's friday the 13th you know uh so yeah i mean i do agree but it's it's not that i disagree in the same breath but it's just one of those weird weird things where i think there's been enough media around it saying that it's not a horror movie so you just don't assume it's a horror movie, even though it is, especially when they get to Hannibal Lecter uh, taking the guard skin off and hanging him from his cage that he was. Yes, just in. that's when it's like, no, OK, this is a horror movie. This is not a suspense thriller anymore. You know, it crosses that line. If I have to sell somebody with scenes, number one, that scene comes up. Uh, Hannibal Lecter getting out of this cell that looks like nobody would be able to escape from using some creative ways. Right. Uh, and then the, the, the last scene with the night vision goggles near the end of the film that I won't spoil, but will say that in terms of suspense may be one of the most tense, scariest scenes I've ever seen on film. It is down. Like it's terrifying. You are like holding your breath. Like, Oh my God. Like, and then, they what's amazing is there's not much sound going on in that yeah. whole sequence. It's mostly breathing, which kind of intensifies your like anxiety having to sit through that in like a, a dark theater. It's really impressive. It won five Oscars. It won best director. Yeah. So best picture, director, actor, actress, and adapted screenplay. And one other point that I'll make is that when you think about Silence of the Lambs, the character of Hannibal Lecter is probably what you think about first, which is a testament to how good Hopkins' performance is because I recently rewatched this and he's only in the movie like 15 minutes. It's not very long. Yeah, you're right. 
it's a real small, but you think it's more of the movie because it's so such a great character. I mean, to the yes. point where it's like you get Hannibal as a sequel later on, which okay, <laughs> you know, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, which did not make my list. No, I don't think it'll make anyone's list. You know, shots fired, but that that's not a very good movie. The back and forth that he and Jodie Foster have, it's like a game of mind chess that they're playing against each other, and it's just so captivating. Uh, Silence of the Lambs, I stick by my pick. It's a horror movie. It's definitely a sequel and a worthy as my number one pick. My number one pick, although this isn't a horror movie, it has a ton of horror elements carried over from the first one, but my number one pick is Aliens. You're going out there to destroy them. That's the plan. All right, I'm in. The first time she survived the most terrifying creature in the universe, she thought the nightmare was over. Something under the floor. It hadn't even begun. Coming straight for That's inside the room. Sigourney Weaver, Aliens, the new movie. This time, it's war. Going way back. So, uh, my childhood movie watching, my dad was the one that like loved movies that's where i got my love of movies from but he was not the type of father it was like oh we're gonna get you kids movies right no it was more like you're going to watch whatever i decided to rent or whatever you know and this is like late 80s at this point so he rents alien and i'm like seven years old going through Jesus. like I'm like holy but i was like enthralled i could not believe what i was watching like the chestburster scene, you know, holy smokes. I was not prepared for that. But sure. But then we get to the second one and I could not believe what I was seeing. It's one of those movies that like broke my brain for a really long time because I didn't think what I was seeing on screen was possible at all. And then you have this you go from this kind of ghost in space horror movie to this all-out war with aliens, right? And it's so much, it's so exhilarating because you're like, well, one alien, like, tore apart one crew, and now you have over a 100 of them. Oh, there's a queen at the end. Good luck, <laughs> you know? Uh, and it just, the escalation, and what I, I thought is impressive, and it's kind of a similar vein throughout all of my picks, is that even with it being a sequel, the intensity goes up again, right? And even though you already know what this creature is, what it is capable of, and like how to kill it or get away from it, you're still like, I don't know where, you still have this uneasy feeling of how are they going to escape this? I don't know where they're going to go or how to get out of it. And just so many sequences, like action set pieces, like even the characters in it, uh, it was all fantastic. And still, like, even as terrifying, there's still some genuinely funny moments in it. And uh, that's something else that I appreciate in a lot of these, too, you know, is being able to mix, like, something that's completely suspenseful and terrifying. And then, like, hey, we're going to do something pretty funny, <laughs> you know, right now, you know? Yeah. So Aliens, uh, one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, definitely in my top five. Yeah, this one crossed my mind. And this is one that was mentioned in the sequels scene in Scream 2 when they bring up Alien 2 or Aliens. Uh, and it's it's true. It's not 
a horror movie in itself. It's more of like an action thriller, but it is the sequel to a straight up horror movie. So it definitely fits on this list for sure. Uh, did you have any picks that like you wanted to mention, but didn't quite make your list? I've got a whole, I got a couple of honorable mentions of my own. Hellraiser 2. But then I'm like, you know what? I don't really want to talk about Hellraiser because it kind of gets under my skin, <laughs> you know? Um, and then like, um, to uh, not to the same extent, but like the reanimator franchise, you know, like, uh, the second one is like a really fun watch, but then at the same time, it's like, I don't know if I want to talk about that, <laughs> you know, like sure. it's, it's just such a wild ride and such wild experiences. I mean, I remember the first time that I showed a couple of buddies of mine who are not like initiated into horror, not even like big movie watchers. It's like, hey, we should watch Reanimator. And like, it's one of those times where it's like, I felt like I showed them something and then they in they then judged me entirely differently after I was like, yeah, this is a fun movie. And then they saw it and like, I don't think I even know you. <laughs> you know? Oh, so, I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. A um, couple that I'll mention. Wishmaster 2 takes that franchise in a very interesting direction. Child's Play 2, I think, is way better than the first one. It I 100% has... agree with you. Yeah, I... great opening scene, great climax. Yep, I agree with that 100%. Uh, Exorcism 3 is way better than it deserves to be and is way better than the second one. <laughs> that second one is so bizarre. Like, I... <laughs> They're talking about locusts and, you know, being able to transfer your brain <laughs> waves to someone else. And who knows what's going on? <laughs> that yeah. The heretic is weird. <laughs> uh, Army of Darkness was on my also rands, which is obviously the sequel to uh, Evil Dead 2, which you mentioned. House 2, the second story, is a goofy ass movie. But it's a lot of fun, and it has one of the best titles of all time. The second story, right? Yeah, I just, I love it. <laughs> yeah. And then um, narrowly missing my list, because it was too sci-fi and not enough horror, is Class of 1999, which is a sequel to Class of 1984. Okay. Which I really think is great. Actually, another one just popped in my head, uh, Gremlins 2, you know. Oh, yeah. That's a yep, good one. That's a good pick, too. Because it goes from something, like, completely scary to something, like, insanely comical you know like the the night and day difference between the two of them is really interesting that's another one that goes in a very meta satirical direction it does it does great list i think we gave people some great sequels to check out before you get out of here though let's let's talk a little bit more about the podcast because we talked about your art we haven't really talked about the podcast so tell us about what you co-host and why people should listen to it yeah, so the the podcast that I co-host uh, with a friend of mine, his name's Brian. Uh, basically, it's a it's a movie discussion podcast, uh, but we try to keep it light and funny. But each episode, we talk about one movie specifically. Now, it either could be, you know, we're like critiquing the movie, kind of. We don't consider ourselves film critics by any stretch, you know. Uh, but we uh, discuss movies kind of in detail. Sometimes it's like we're going into like the nuances of the movie or our personal experiences around it. But it's, you know, we try to record like an hour for each episode. But yeah, each episode concentrates on like one specific movie. Like the last movie we just talked about was um, Return of Swamp Thing. And 
amazingly campy movie but like when you really kind of like watch it for what it is it becomes like super entertaining and then we go into like the slight background of it like who made it and then you know our general thoughts so that's what we do every tuesday it comes out like clockwork you know uh we record and then uh give ourselves like a little bit of a turnaround leeway time so usually we record like and then uh, have like a nine day lead time. So sometimes we talk about a current <laughs> event, right? That just happened like while we're recording. And then our episode is coming out like two weeks after that. And people are like, what? <laughs> that, that happened a little while ago, you know? Uh, but yeah, Been we uh, we try to have fun with it as much as we can. So try to be informative and have a couple laughs. Or other times we come across a movie that is just so absurdly awful that we feel like we need to have like a public health crisis announcement to avoid this movie. You know, one of them was like shocking dark, which is a, Oh yeah. Bruno Mate. Yeah. Which is an insanely blatant ripoff of aliens. It is crazy that it's not like that. Nothing was done about plagiarism, you know? Oh, wait until you see his, uh, his robo war, which is a, predator terminator ripoff yeah and there's also cruel jaws uh which mm-hmm. also just got its dare i say 4k release maybe recently uh blu-ray blu-ray release okay from okay yes uh but uh yeah so you know uh, we've been doing it uh for about a year now a little over a year so a year and a couple months it started as like a covid19 project because i was laid off from work so is he. And we're just like, man, we got like 40 hours a week <laughs> to do something. What do you want to do? And so, yeah, we just started the podcast and, you know, ended up getting legs and, you know, been able to branch out into other things. And, you know, more recently, we, it, we had the luxury of uh, uh, interviewing the director of uh, The Unholy that I just came that. at came out uh directed by evan spiliotopoulos uh and that was a really entertaining interview so yeah i mean it's it's been an amazing experience like i just love how technology can come together and people are able to talk about stuff from you know thousands of miles away it's just amazing if if somebody's going to go to the feed what uh what's an episode you think people should start with what's one of your favorites oh man well, if you want to hear us uh, tearing apart a movie, um, that would be shocking dark. And I don't know the episode off the top of my head, but I will say like or what number it is. But the the most recent one with um, uh, uh, covering Return of Swamp Thing, I think is a really great introduction to like how we format the episodes and like where we go and weave in and out. So um, I think like not to be like, Hey, we did our best episode. Everything else is garbage. But I do think like we hit, we were firing on all cylinders on that episode. Well, go check out the post credits podcast and go jump on mpepler.com. M P E P P L E R.com. Go buy some art. Well, man, thank you so much for saying that. I really appreciate it. And thank you for having me on this podcast. This was like a lot of fun to talk about these movies. It was fun. And I'm glad we get to uh, talk about some sequels that uh, some of which don't get very much love too often. So no, they sure don't. Listeners, if there's a sequel that we completely neglected, let me know. Hit me up on Instagram or Twitter, Force 5 Podcast on Instagram, Force 5 Pod on Twitter. 
Also head to force5podcast.com for the show request form and other Force 5 related stuff. As you do that, take a minute to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some horror movie sequels. We'll be right back.